this morning we are continuing in this journey through the book of Acts. I've kind of said all along, it's, it's sort of an epic movement. It's, I don't really know where we're going to be. I tried to put a schedule together for dawn. I've changed it like five times. So we're just riding it out. And so it could take us well into, I mean, Christ, Jesus could just come back and we'll still be in the middle of the book of Acts. So, but I, I actually have loved it and it's taking us through some very intentional kind of, of movements. And it's more than a, a picture or a story that we're reliving. I, I've been telling you all along, it's something that we're called into. Both as a church and as individual Christ followers, we are called into this. It is the story of being empowered and sent. It's the story of the church, and it's the story of those of us called to follow Christ. And, and we've gone through some pretty amazing scenarios, and we've met some amazing people. We've entered into some, some incredibly powerful exchanges. And this movement will take us through several of those. And last week, we saw the growing hostility to the early church. So we've taken us all the way up through chapter 5, and we're really beginning to now catch a full picture of how hostile the culture was to the early church. And for the second time, we see the apostles arrested, thrown in jail, wrongly accused, slandered, and then this time, we see them severely beaten actually flogged with a sentence that was 39 lashes, which was one minus a death sentence, told by this ruling council of Jewish leaders to never speak about Jesus again, knowing full well that the next time they did, the only punishment left was death. And yet we see the those apostles leaving the presence of that court, rejoicing, celebrating that they had been counted worthy to, to be persecuted, basically, for the name of Christ. And what we looked at last week was, were a couple of things. One, that we were going to always, as Christ followers, be in the face of prevailing culture. That we were going to be called to live counterculturally. Whether it was the mandate to never talk about Jesus, or whether it was a different way of thinking about material things in fi- our financial worlds, or success, or whatever. Following Christ was going to always put us in opposition with prevailing culture. From 2,000 years ago, all the way through today. And we talked about the fact that in the middle of our struggles and fears and concerns and difficulties in life, we could see those things with one of two sets of eyes. We could see those, those struggles and those fears and those kind of hurts that we have or those difficulties with the woe is me, right? Like well, part of me that says, I can't believe this is happening to me. God, I said yes, and I was trying to follow you, yet my life continues to be difficult or things continue to pile up. And we can say, woe is me, which really proclaims, God, this is about me and God, I don't trust you. Or as the apostles do when they leave that presence of the Sanhedrin after being accused and slandered and beaten and all those things, they celebrate and they rejoice. Or we could say things like, I choose joy, right? Or or what a joy, because that says, God, this is about you and God, I trust you. And we talked about trusting the Lord and we kind of framed everything that way. But this is the opposition that the early church was facing. What we'll see as we progress in the book of Acts is that it gets more and more severe, and we're going to begin to see people losing their lives for following Jesus, for proclaiming Christ as their Savior. Well, this morning, we've got a little bit of a transition passage. Now, Scripture is fascinating when you work through it this way, right? Because Acts is one of those books that's filled with these incredible, amazing, wondrous tales. And then it's also filled with these little moments that serve as sort of transitions to get you to these great theological icebergs, if you will. And I think this morning's text is going to serve a purpose to get us to a bigger picture in chapter 7, which will change the entire trajectory of the church as we know it. And this little passage is going to serve as a transition for us to introduce us to a couple of people, right? 
and tell us about some problems that the church was dealing with. But I think it's really significant. Because oftentimes when we go story to story to story in Scripture and we skip the things in between, we miss sort of the, the way that God works that sort of moves our hearts the most. Because we all love the, the wondrous celebration kind of healing story. But it's God in the details that I think changes the life of a Christ follower. What we're going to see today is God in the middle of the details, um, which is where most of us need to see God working in our own life anyway. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open it up to Acts chapter 6. If you don't have one, um, keep that one that's there in front of you. You're welcome to it. Uh, we'd love for you to, to keep it. It'd be our pleasure for you to have it. Um, if not, we'll get you one. There's not one in front of you, but you can always bring it. We will be in it every single week. We will teach through it, and uh, we're going verse by verse through this journey. And so this is just sort of how we teach, or how I teach, and kind of what we're in. So bring that that Bible. No one, no one will make fun of you, right? You bring your Bible to church, right? That's great. I bring mine. Cooler than me. So, um, okay, let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the opportunity to gather here. I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is living and active. I thank you that it is sharper than any double-edged sword that you tell us it penetrates, even the dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit, that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. God, I deeply believe that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. And so, God, I pray this morning that you would do as you would teach our hearts, that you would instruct our hearts, that you would give us encouragement when we need it, that you would give us conviction, uh, that you would speak directly to us. Take a moment in your own heart. Just ask God to reveal himself to you this morning, to teach you. Just say, God, teach me. Take a moment and pray for someone around you. Each week we kind of say be in the habit of praying for other people. Pray that God would move in that way, even if you have to call their name. recognize that when we open your word, we will not discover anything. You are the revealer of truth. You teach our hearts. And so, God, we ask for the Spirit to come and teach our hearts and to go beyond our words. Father, and and meet us right where we need to be met. Be glorified as we open your word together, God, and as a church, teach our collective heart together, as individuals, turn our lives upside down. We ask this in Jesus' name. So we left off last week, and the apostles have left the presence of the Sanhedrin, right, which is the, the 70-ish members of the Jewish ruling council made up of the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees. They had beaten the apostles to within an inch of their life, told them never to speak about Jesus again, and sent them on their way. And they go out, as it says in verse 41, rejoicing because they have been counted uh, worthy of suffering for the name. Right? And day after day, they continue to meet in the temple courts and continue to proclaim Christ and the good news, and they never stopped. And that's where we left off. The church is moving. Let's look at verse 6. Uh, chapter 6, verse, um, verse 1. So in those days, the number of disciples was increasing. And the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait tables. Brothers, choose seven from among you from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to the prayer and the ministry of the word. Well, this proposal pleased the whole group, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, 
Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, and Antioch, uh, from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the word of God spread. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith as well. Now Stephen, a man of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and Jews of Cyrene and Cilicia and Asia. The men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom of the spirit by which he spoke. They secretly persuaded some of the men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. And they produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place, against the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like that of an angel. All of chapter 6 exists to get us to chapter 7. Now remember the chapters and those things weren't added until much later. This is one long collective letter, but that whole section exists to get us to chapter 7 because chapter 7 is going to change the entire trajectory of the church. The life and death of a man named Stephen that we are introduced to is going to change the church. And this passage serves as a segment almost to get us to that place. And oftentimes in our sort of movements through scripture, we're really eager to get on to the big places. To hop over those things that seem to don't matter or that are difficult or that whatever. To get to that giant, amazing moment. But chapter 6 is filled with some really important things that I think should resonate in our hearts and resonate with us as a church. And let me tell you what's unfolding and why this section is important before we get to the crowd-pleasing, life-changing movements of chapter 7. We actually see for the first time that the church is having growth pains. It's growing rapidly. Luke is very interested in telling us that even in the wake of this opposition, this struggle, right? The church is growing and it's increasing extremely rapidly. And a problem arose. Now you can imagine when you begin to put people from all walks of life, backgrounds, history, socioeconomic statuses, and you throw them all into one community, the struggles are going to arise. It's actually natural. Now you got to understand too that joining the early church isn't like joining today's modern church, right? Even joining our church, you come to a class on Sunday, we tell you a few things, you learn the handshake, get a t-shirt, and we all sort of are part of this. But I'll see you next Sunday. That's a lot of where our church membership joining stops, right? A lot of our churches require very little other than say a few things, and now we're a part of this, and I'll see you on Sunday, and I give a little bit more. It's not really the picture of joining in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the early church, when you joined, you gave your whole life. Most of the time, you would be disowning your family. You would most likely move within the context of that community. You would give your resources to the bigger picture. We learned in two and four, Acts 2 and 4 that people gave their stuff so that nobody in the community suffered. So when you joined, you went all in. It wasn't kind of one of those things, well, we're going to check it out, make sure Don sings good and Trev's kind of funny. And if we do that, we'll come for a month and doesn't like it, we'll go somewhere else. Until we find the one that works for us or we feel less uncomfortable than the other places and we're going to join because we're tired of moving around. Early church picture was one of sort of surrendering and, and, and in submission, giving my whole life, which included all of my resources. My identity was wrapped up in that. Well, when you did that, imagine what that's like when you're gathered with people that don't look like you, 
that are from every different background that historically your culture and your race had fought with for years and years and years. Now gather together in one place, living together, some thousands of you in pockets of community all over the city, right? Trying to agree on things like, what are we going to read today? Or whatever. I mean, it was just complicated. Well, we read of the first crisis. This is the first crisis that really hits the church. And here's kind of what happens. There's a group of Grecian Jews, which are Greek-speaking or Hellenistic Jews, right? They are Jews that are basically um, coming into Jerusalem from the diaspora. Now, you might remember an Old Testament term. Well, that means the scattering. So back when the northern kingdom, a little quick history lesson, when the northern kingdom was kind of conquered by the Assyrians back in 772, they carried off that first group of Jewish people from the north, and they scattered them among the empire, right, trying to do away with the nation of Israel. Well, the tribe of Judah or the area of Judah known as the southern kingdom sort of existed without the northern kingdom until about 597 when the Babylonians came and conquered them, carried them off into exile. A lot of the Old Testament was written to these scattered groups of Jewish people that are part of the exile. They had been taken from their homeland, spread throughout the countryside, and they began to intermarry and have families. And that section or that history is called the diaspora, the scattering. Well, a lot of these Greek-speaking Jews were a product of those generations of being scattered throughout the countryside that wasn't Hebrew-speaking Jerusalem, right, Judea. Galilee, those areas. And so they would come in for festivals. And a lot of those Jews had come in for the Passover when Christ himself was crucified. The church was growing, and a lot of those Greek-speaking Jews stayed. They were Jews by heritage and lineage, but they lived in Greek-speaking lands. And so we learn here that this group of Grecian or Hellenistic Jews was in a disagreement with the Hebraic or Hebrew-speaking Jews, which were from Jerusalem or Palestine area, the Galilee and sort of Judea area. And they were Hebrew speakers and Greek, and they were disagreeing. Because the Greek Jews believed that when the daily distribution of food was going out, their widows were being overlooked, right? Their widows were being overlooked. Now, now, taking care of the needs of widows and orphans is really important. James chapter 1 tells us that the only religion that God finds true and pure is when we begin to look after the poor and the widow and we protect our hearts from being basically persuaded by the world. The Bible's full of proclamations that the church is called to take care of those that are afflicted and marginalized and oppressed, including widows and orphans. And it was a huge part of the ministry of the church. And they felt like they were getting robbed. Because we all put our resources in this together. Hey, I brought my stuff, you brought your stuff, and when you guys go to spread it around, you're not giving it to our widows. You're giving it to your own, right? So they felt like they were being slighted. And their widows that they had that couldn't provide for themselves, they were getting overlooked, and other people in the community were getting more things than they were. The first crisis of the church is actually one that still penetrates modern church, right? That somehow we have foregone our primary purpose and got lost in sort of the need to nurture and care and comfort ourselves. And so the apostles, a big enough problem where the apostles get together and they say, we got to solve this thing, right? So they gather the people together and they say, listen, here's what we've got to do. Choose seven people from among you because it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the word of God, which God, Jesus himself had commanded us in Acts chapter 1 to become witnesses in Judea and Samaria and Jerusalem, the very ends of the earth, the Great Commission, all that, to go and proclaim the gospel to the world. It wouldn't be right for us to neglect that, to focus on this need, which is a big problem. We get it, but focus on this need. 
And what the early church was wrestling with was that they recognized that their primary purpose was the one that was handed down by Jesus himself, the ministry of the word of God. But they had this other problem that was growing as well, and they had to figure out where to spend their attention and time. Now, about 100 years ago, the United Presbyterian Church in North America, while they were trying to figure out how to do ministry in the new century, kind of changing up their constitution, wrote six great ends of the church. They basically said, why does the church exist? And they wrote six statements as the great ends of the church. Like, we're going to be the church over 100 years ago. And the first one, I think, is spot on because I believe it's echoed and articulated in Scripture. But they said that the first great end or the first primary purpose of the church is the proclamation of the gospel for the salvation of humankind. That is why the church exists first and foremost, the proclamation of the gospel for the salvation of humankind. So I believe that's echoed through Scripture. And kind of see it echoed here. The apostles are saying, we can't focus on this Because we would neglect our primary purpose, yet this is important enough to deal with. This is what plagues our church. The greatest plague, I think, in kind of our culture, in our historical culture with the church, is exchanging our primary purpose, the proclamation of the gospel for the salvation of humankind, for the comfort and nurture and care of ourselves. And no one church in history sets out to do this on purpose, but it happens, and it happened in the first century. Our widows are not getting as much food. Fix this internal struggle, right? And we have this happen all the time. I mean, churches argue and they fight over what Sunday school class should get what room or who reserved the family life center first, the fifth grade choir, the women's luncheon or whatever. I was actually part of a meeting eight years ago, a leader meeting at our church where it was an argument over the budget and, and the, the chair of our membership committee stood up and was furious. This is back way back in Olden, Texas, was furious because the singles ministry had a bigger budget than the membership committee. And that person actually stood up in front of this group of leaders and said, this is an outrage. We are trying to make members, and they are trying to make babies. And Jesus cried, of course. And, and I thought to myself, no way that dude just said that. Like, really? But it was, it was one of those things where I was like, first of all, I don't think that's what they're doing. But the point was, you're taking from what's important to me to give what's important to you. And we argue and fight over these internal things. And when we do that, we exchange our primary purpose for the nurture and care and comfort of ourselves. And what was plaguing the church? Your widows are getting more cheese than our widows. And it's not fair. It is not fair. So we see this problem. So the apostles decide the only way to take care of it is to create a leadership structure by which they gave it the importance that it was due, but they didn't neglect their primary purpose. So they basically said, choose seven, right, men from among you who are known to be two things, full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we're going to turn this responsibility over to them, and we will turn our attention to the ministry of the Word, right? So they said, these guys have got to have a couple of things. They've got to be known to be full of the Spirit of God and known to be full of wisdom. But sort of the key word there is the word known, right? That has to be seen in them, that the community and people around them must must see that in their lives. They must be known by people far and wide to be full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. In other words, they must be people that live this Christ-following nature in every category of their life. Not just somebody saying, hey, hey, let's make sure we get our guy on that committee. 
We want to make sure our widows get the cheese. So, so he's really good. Make sure you get them on there. Now, the point was put people who were full of the Spirit of God, right? Not people who are really good at administering food. A lot of times we create leadership structures within today's church based on what gifts we think people have to solve a certain problem. But if you really read the Bible, people are actually put in leadership roles in Scripture because of their first and foremost heart and spiritual maturity for Christ. Full of the spirit and wisdom, not because they knew they had already set up a nonprofit and knew how to distribute cheese to women that didn't have husbands. Right? So they said full, known to be full of the spirit and full of wisdom. And this pleased everybody, of course. They were like, okay, that's great. Because what they were concerned with was that this happened. And what the apostles were concerned with and their primary role was to make sure that they didn't neglect what Christ had called them to do. And it's still important. So they come up with this plan, and it pleased the people. People pleased the whole group, and they chose a couple of guys. They chose seven, actually. Stephen, who's going to become very important, right? Philip, who also was going to become very important later in the book of Acts. And then five guys that most of us have never really even heard of with weird names like Nicanor and Parmenas and things like that. But these are the seven. Well, they prese- and then, then they presented these to the men, the men of the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests even became obedient to the word. So they come up with this plan, they lay hands on these guys, and they appoint them to leadership roles, right? Which we see the first time happening in Scripture, leaders being appointed by the laying on the hands of the apostles, right? And God grants this incredible favor, and Luke tells us that the church begins to grow even at a more rapid rate. In fact, in almost a throwaway sentence at the end, he says, a large group of priests even came to know the Lord or gave their life to the Word, which is really incredibly significant if you think about it, because if you know your Old Testament, the priests were a generational lineage that were raised to carry out the sacrificial means of the temple. That was what their purpose was. The priests carried that role. They were born into the right families. They, from birth, were raised to carry out priestly duties, to do the sacrifices that were required for temple life. And what basically Luke is saying is that this group of people that have generationally been raised to make sacrifices for the temple have now bought into the fact that only one sacrifice was needed and even their very way of life has no value at this point in their life. The word of God was that powerful and that transformative that it changed the life of people whose whole life was about the very opposite of the sacrifice that Christ made, which is a throwaway line at the end, but an, an effort that Luke says, listen, God's hand is all over this stuff. This little section actually serves all that to get us to one thing, Stephen. It was an introduction passage to what is about to happen, right? But in the middle of it are some really important nuances that we'll, I'll explore just a little bit more in a minute when we talk about the church. But So this is what happens with this now guy, Stephen, who's been raised to leadership. Look at verse 8. Stephen, who is now a man known to be full of God's, uh, God's spirit and full of wisdom, has been put in this leadership role. And verse 8 says he was a man full of God's grace as well. He was full of power, and he did great and miraculous signs among the people while opposition arose. Probably because he's now in a leadership role, he's visible, opposition arises. And there's members of a synagogue there in Jerusalem, the synagogue that was called the Freedmen, which was actually named after a large group of slaves that had been set free. And that synagogue was made up of a bunch of Greek Jews. 
people that ha- are from a Greek heritage, right? And they list a bunch of provinces, provinces excuse me. And, and a lot of scholars believe that Saul of Tarsus, who would later become Paul, was a part of the synagogue because he was from Tarsus, and that fits within the context. And he may have even been one of those people that was arguing with Stephen. Neither here nor there, but it will, when we see the end of chapter 7, it makes sense why that might be true. So they begin to argue with Stephen. And these men began to kind of create arguments, but they couldn't stand up against his wisdom or about the, by the Spirit. And the, so they secretly persuaded some other people. They said, listen, we obviously can't out-argue this guy. He, he's got a, an ability to argue from a, a spirit that's not something we're normally used to, which is obviously the power of the Holy Spirit. So they persuade some people to falsely accuse him. So here's what we're going to do. You are going to say some things about this guy so that we can basically get them in trouble. And they stir up the elders and they stir up the people and they get them all fired up by saying things like, Stephen's been talking bad about Moses. You can't talk bad about Moses. He's Moses. Stephen is talking bad about Moses, and he's talking bad about God. And more so, he's talking bad about this holy place, and even more so, he said that Jesus said that he was going to destroy this place. What are you going to do about that? Well, remember, the leaders were already fired up, right? They had already twice told these apostles never to talk about Jesus again. One time with idle threats, the second time, right, with beating them. There were not a lot of options left. They had issued this ultimatum. They couldn't believe that these guys were still out there spitting this same garbage about Jesus. Well, of course, all those are false accusations. Stephen never really said any of that, except for maybe the piece about where Jesus said he was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it again. Of course, he was talking about his body and not about the actual physical temple. But that doesn't necessarily matter. Everyone was fired up. So here's Stephen having to step into this new leadership role, if you will. And he's falsely accused like everybody else. And what is more, he is now accused of something that is much more kind of problematic than what the apostles were charged with, which was proclaiming Jesus in the resurrection. Stephen has been basically accused of blasphemy, which in Old Testament law had to be punished by death. So when they raised false accusations against Stephen, they upped the ante and basically said, he's not only blaspheming against Moses, but he's blaspheming against God. And by saying that and putting these witnesses that would testify to it, the only way to punish that was through death. So Stephen faces this grave kind of situation. The Sanhedrin is incensed. And then chapter 6 ends with this, right? All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin, all 71-ish of these guys, right? looked intently at Stephen. And what they saw was that his face was like that of an angel. There's a lot we could probably read into here, and uh, I'll get to a few things in just a second, but just let that soak for a minute. Because really what we're seeing is in the middle of this sort of horrible, ugly slander, accusations, and anger that is being spewed at him, everybody that's sitting in his presence see Stephen reflecting or actually exuding the loveliness of God. And the chapter ends. And this chapter takes us into this incredible speech and then ultimately the death of Stephen that would change the church. Now, because it's one of those passages that sort of is serving as a a movement to a bigger picture, I don't want to try and do 
too much with it to try and create something where there's nothing. I mean, what we're doing through the book of Acts is not crafting hermeneutical sermons with great little points. What we're doing is we're entering into a call and reliving and retelling stories and finding ourselves lost and found in God's word. So we don't want to put something where something isn't, right? But there's a couple of things that I think we should hang on to as as a church and as individuals. And one comes in each of those sections. And the first I talked about quite a bit, and that is that as a church, may we never exchange our primary purpose for the nurture and care and comfort of ourselves. If the primary purpose of the church, which I believe is echoed in that first great end, is the proclamation of the gospel for the salvation of humankind, may that forever and always be our primary goal. Now, it doesn't mean the other things don't matter. I mean, even in our own core theology statement, I jotted it down. When we talk about the church, we say it is the Holy Spirit who leads the church in its mission in the world, and the mission includes the proclamation of the gospel, making and sending disciples, caring for those in need, and seeking justice for the afflicted and the oppressed. Like the church exists not just for that one thing, but that one thing is its primary purpose. And I said no church in history ever set out to neglect its primary purpose and become internally focused on itself. But it happens like a disease, right? And before we know it, we become enthralled with and engaged in the nurture and care of ourselves. We fight over chair colors and the temperature of a room. And who's getting the most cheese? Who's making babies and who's making members, right? We end up engaging in those things. And we neglect and forget or exchange our primary purpose. And as a church, we have to fight this at all costs, that we need to be all in for the proclamation of the gospel that exists out, our call outside of these walls. And when I say that, I'm not meaning that Trev goes out and stands on the corner at Walmart and proclaims the gospel. I'm talking about you as the church, as individuals, in your neighborhoods and workplaces and communities, proclaiming Jesus is Lord is your primary responsibility to the people that you know, don't know, and love through your actions, words, and behavior, right? That is why the church exists. And it is easy to see how we quickly and kind of inadvertently exchange that truth for what I believe to be the greatest disease that plagues the church, which is the comfort and care and nurture of ourselves. As a church, I love Linda. I love Linda. Who is Linda? I bet we're... It's glorious. <laughs> All right, we'll see y'all next week. No, um, so good. We can't exchange that. Is my whole point. Second thing comes out of that second piece, which is this: as individuals, may we always exude Jesus. Now, exude is a funky, weird word. I get it, but it's the only word I could think of that really captures what I'm kind of trying to say. Because the word exude means to openly and strongly. Let come from within, all right? So you exude something, you openly and strongly, it comes from within side of you. Now, the Christ followers, we are called to exude Jesus. And this is what I think is happening in the life of Stephen. In the middle of this opposition, struggle, and hatred, and slander, and sort of spewing all these things, right? What the people of Sanhedrin and gather around see is they see something on his face that comes from within, They say that his face is like that of an angel. And the only way I can describe it is that 
Christ inside, dwelling within a, in us, is exuding, is coming out of um, Stephen. Now, there's a difference in, the re, in, in reflecting Christ and exuding Christ. A lot of times you'll hear us use language or Christians use language like, we exist to reflect Jesus to the watching world. Kind of like the, the moon exists to reflect the sun. It's how we know it's there. We're called to reflect Jesus. And the idea isn't wrong, and I occasionally use those terms as well, but the reality is theologically it's missing a really big point. And that is when we surrender our lives as Christ followers, when we give our lives to Jesus, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit literally comes and dwells within us, takes up Life in our bodies becomes at home, residence is in our life. But I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, as Paul said, right? Colossians 3, he says that I have died and my life is now hidden with Christ in God. God is alive in me through Christ. So if the Holy Spirit is alive in me, I can't reflect as if God were the sun somehow shining off me through my actions and behavior. Reflecting means I just sort of try to do the best I can to let you see God. But as a Christ follower, if we recognize the Holy Spirit dwells within us, our role is to exude it, to allow it to seep out of every pore, every thought, every word, every angle, every action of our bodies. That in the middle of crazy hostility and frustration and false accusation and anger and fear, like Stephen people see in us is Jesus. But the reality is for a lot of us in those moments of anxiety and fear and worry and struggle, they don't see Jesus in us, or at least in my life, they see the worst of me. Because that's when those things come out. But like Stephen, our greatest purpose should be that even in those moments, I want to exude the Holy Spirit that lives in me. I want it to seep out of my words the way that I treat people, the things that I say, even the way that I look at them. I want them to see Jesus. The church exists for the proclamation of the gospel, for the salvation of humankind, period. First and foremost, let us never exchange that truth for the nurture and care and protection of ourselves, period. It's a danger we run into, and when we trade it off as a church, when we begin to become self-inwardly focused, maintenance and survival at all costs, leave. Go somewhere else. Our primary purpose, not neglecting those other things, but giving them their right space, our primary purpose, the proclamation of the gospel. You, in your lives, in your neighborhoods, in your workplace, in your families, proclaiming with your life, action, words, and behavior that Jesus is Lord. And as individuals, that our challenging goal would be, even in the middle of the most difficult, trying circumstances, the ones that seem out of your control and out of your hands, that you did nothing to deserve except say, yes, Jesus, I will try and follow you. Remember, Stephen did nothing. They appointed him. He didn't decide he wanted to be a leader. He just followed the Lord, and it led him to a path of accusation and slander and hatred, trial, and it's going to lead him to death. see in his life is Jesus, the face of an angel, not because he was perfect, but because the Holy Spirit was coming out of his life. What do people see in you in those moments of struggle and difficulty, anxiety and worry? What do they see in you when they accuse you and say horrible things about you or make horrible posts about you or whatever it is? What do they see? The best? This becomes
becomes our call together. These are the moments we put anchors in the ground and we say, God, this is where I make a stand, sir. In between the massive big movements of faith and the little lines, we find Jesus at work in the middle. These are the truths we have.